0: Let us turn to Judges chapter 20 for the worship of our God through the hearing and the preaching of his holy word. We are in the middle of a long epilogue which covers the last three chapters of Judges as we wind down towards the end of our series through this book. Last week we saw in chapter 19. Brutal rape of and the abuse of the Levite's concubine. And we noted how the Levite himself was no less guilty of mistreating her. But now we get the horrific aftermath that follows this. The author is showing us the religious and the moral and just the civil chaos. That comes when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and the people do not have a king to rule over them. So our text is Judges chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in, in chapter 19, verse 27 for the context, and although we're going to cover the entire chapter of 20, there's, it's a long chapter. It's so long, I'm going to break up the readings uh, so that we just go a little bit at a time. So we will begin with Judges 19, verse 27, and we'll read through verse 10 of chapter 20 to begin with. Brethren, let us remember, as uncomfortable and horrific as these things are, this is the very Word of God. Let us receive it as such. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, and he went out to go on his way, behold, There was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened Or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including to the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, and the chiefs of all the people. Of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this happen? How did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, "'I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah arose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead.' So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against by lot, and we will take ten men of hundred, throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. Amen. Bow with me again in prayer. Father, we ask that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the seed of your word, we ask that your truth would take deep root in us, producing a fruit that leads to eternal life. We ask that you would grant us faith, grant us growth and godliness, grant us love for you and for our neighbor. We ask that you would do this through your spirit and in Christ's name. Amen. It was Frederick Nietzsche who said, Be careful when you fight a monster lest you become a monster. We might not think much of the source coming from Nietzsche, but as we think about this, his words have an element of truth to them. Sometimes in our zeal to destroy evil, we ourselves end up becoming just like that, which we hate. Sometimes even worse. Just as we've seen throughout this series of judges, we've seen the idolatry all throughout these first 19 chapters, just like what we love molds and shapes who we are, you know, in the same respect, what we hate has a similar effect on us. And that's the frightening nature of sin and idolatry. Our lives are often ruled and shaped by our greatest loves and our greatest fears. Oftentimes, What we hate brings things out of our hearts that were previously hidden before. Oftentimes, when we're confronted with something we hate, we rise up in righteous indignation and our hate ends up leading us to commit greater sins and atrocities in response, even more than what was committed against us. We're sinned against we want to right that wrong, and we end up committing an even worse sin in retaliation. That's often the nature of sin and idolatry. As we come to Judges chapter 20, this is what we are watching unfold with this uh, essentially uh, budding civil war here in Israel. One of the twelve tribes of Israel has committed a great sin. They're, they're monstrous, we might say. But in response, the nation of Israel, under the banner of righteous indignation, we will see in the end, revealed to be monsters as well. Literally and figuratively, we are watching Israel dismember itself into oblivion. Instead of driving out the pagan nations, which was their commission by God, they've now turned entirely upon towards one another. And they're, and they're fighting to the point where the nation is now on the brink of extinction. And this is the tragic nature of this closing epilogue in this book. But if we're going to make sense of the passage today, if we're going to uh, re, you know, kind of apply and rightly understand exactly what's going on here, I want to remind you of the overarching problem. What is the overarching problem? What is going on in Israel at this time? What is the author's problem and remedy to the solution here? The problem is that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. The problem is, as the author says, they had no righteous king to rule over them. And so all of this evil that we see, all of the evil that we've seen so far, is a result of these things. Last week we saw the mistreatment of women. We saw homosexuality. We saw rape. We saw dismemberment of an innocent victim. And this week we see factions and civil war. All of this is a result of a society of a people left to rule themselves. A society convinced that they had the capability and the right to determine how they wanted to live. To be who they wanted to be. And more than all this, though, not only does it lead to all those other sorts of sin, but even when Israel tries to do the right thing here and punish evil, their judgment is so twisted that they end up making matters worse. Sin not only leads to those horrific things that we saw, but sin also impairs our judgment, even in our zeal to do the right thing. And ultimately, in God's judgment against sin, we see that He often hands sinners over to themselves to do more sin. So that in the end, sin bites and devours and eventually consumes itself. That's the tragedy of this passage. It's the tragedy of this closing epilogue. And what this illustrates for us is, is Israel, which in many respects, just like us, Israel, unless something changes, unless someone comes from the outside to save them from themselves, to rule over them, there is no hope for survival. And that's true with us as well, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation. Without the intervention of God's grace, without God ruling over us, instead of us ruling ourselves, this sin will always bring utter self-destruction. So that's kind of the big picture of what we see in our passage today. And to, to work our way through this long and winding narrative, I hope you'll bear with me through some of this. It's not the easiest text in the world to, uh, to preach and, and to uh, kind of f- force into 45 minutes. But to navigate our way through it, I've got three, three simple headings for us this morning. Three things we'll see. Tainted leadership, terrible tribalism, and twisted punishment. It's pretty easy to remember, Right? Tainted leadership, terrible tribalism, and twisted punishment. First, I want to consider this idea of what it means, uh, what I mean by tainted leadership. We considered this a little bit last week. We considered at length the Levite, how he abuses his concubine, how he cares nothing for her. And I argued there uh, last week that the abuse of women in society leads to the abuse of everything. There's a connection there between the abuse of women and utter lawlessness. But we've got to come back to this today because this plays a role in the, um, the narrative and what follows uh, from this. We've got to come back to the fact that what do we see in chapter 19? Well, the Levite and his concubine was spent the night in the Benjaminite city of Gibeah. While they were there, some men surrounded the house and they demanded that the Levite come out uh, for homosexual relations. Gibeah was portrayed as a a new Sodom, the epitome of God's wickedness and the object of God's wrath against sin. But eventually, uh, to save himself, the Levite throws his concubine out to the mob, as if that's somehow better, right? They rape and abuse her all night. Clearly we saw the Levite cares nothing for her. He saw her as his own personal property. He saw her as less than human. And this is even more obvious when in the morning when he gets up, he's ready to get on his way when, oh, he kind of stumbles over her, lying at the threshold of the house. And what does he say to her? Are you okay? I'm sorry to thro- uh, that I threw you to the wolves. No, he just says, get up. We've we've got to get going. He doesn't care one bit about her suffering. The climax, though, of this brutal dehumanization of her comes in verse 29. He takes a knife and he divides her limb by limb and sends pieces of her throughout the land of Israel. So we think about this. This is the ultimate denial of her personhood. She's denied even the dignity and respect of a proper burial. You know, I heard a a Vietnamese uh, soldier uh, um, the other day. He was a, a veteran of the Vietnam War. And he was talking about how he was amazed that on the battlefield, U.S. Marines would never, ever leave their dead behind. You know, someone, a Marine would get dead and wounded on the field and this this. Old vet would say, we would sit there and pick off all the people coming to save them. But they would keep coming and coming and coming. He was just flabbergasted that they would never leave their dead behind, no matter how much it cost them. That's because even in death, like we, we, we acknowledge the, the personhood of human beings as made in the image of God. And so in this respect, he is brutally dehumanizing her. And as a Levite of all people, he ought to have known the value of every human being is made in the image of God. The worst part about this, though, is that the narrator kind of leaves things open and leaves us wondering, was she dead when he started to cut her up? You know, we're really not told. The narrator kind of wants us to, to see like, the cold and calculated nature of his heart. So this brutal dehumanization of her, sending her to different tribes of Israel. We've got to stop and ask, though, why does he do this? What is he communicating? What's the purpose of this? Well, in one respect, this wasn't entirely unheard of in the ancient Near East. It, well, with animals, that is. We see something similar in 1 Samuel chapter 11. King Saul is offended at the, the Ammonites, and he takes two oxen. And he cuts them up and he sends them to the tribes of Israel. And the message was: This is what will happen to you if you don't come to my aid. So, in one respect, it's a way to rally the troops. It's a way to threaten people to come to come to come to, uh, come to uh, my aid. Uh, otherwise, something bad's going to happen to you. But here with this, this is really at a whole other level. The Levite does this with a human body. And a Levite doing it is essentially threatening a curse upon the land. It's more than just rallying the troops. It's it's a religious leader trying to spook them. We saw last week, this priest threw his concubine to the dogs. He literally sacrificed himself, excuse me, sacrificed her life to preserve his own. But now... What do we see? He's cutting her up, just like a sacrifice. That's what you do with sacrifices. In fact, the word here, divided, the only other usage of it in the Old Testament is in reference to cutting up, dividing animal sacrifices. So all of this shows us, really, what the Levite is doing is, he's making a human sacrifice. That's the imagery here. This illustrates for us just the, the, the inroads that Canaanite paganism had, had, had infiltrated, to the extent infiltrated, the land of Israel. This illustrates for us, just like Yephthah a few chapters before, a woman that he ought to have protected is sacrificed for his own gain. She's used for his own pleasure, his own purposes, his own life. Human sacrifice is an utter abomination to God. And coming from from a priest who is is to guard and protect the, the Word of God and the holy worship of Yahweh, this is horrendous. This is scandalous. If the leaders in Israel would commit such atrocities, just imagine what the people would then do. But we're not quite done with this priest yet. He certainly got the nation's attention, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 20. All of Israel assembles as one man. This is ironic and heartbreaking, really. This kind of unity is unprecedented in the book. No other judge, not Samson, right? Not Ehud, not not any of the uh, Gideon, not any of the other judges were able to get this kind of unity in Israel. But here, The tragedy is they're unified against one another. Here, the tragedy is they're unified, really, only to destroy itself, to destroy one another. Israel gathers in holy assembly. Essentially, this is a worship service. In verse 3, they ask the Levite, what happened? What happened? What would we expect from what we've seen from him so far? He's already... Kind of a scoundrel. And accordingly, we see a few inaccuracies in his account of what happened. For example, he, in verse 5, he charges the leaders of Gibeah with a crime. But as we know, we, we already read the story, it was a few worthless fellows that did this horrible thing. It's not being entirely accurate. Then he makes it really personal. He charges them with wanting to kill him. They came against me, which might be close to the truth, but it's a bit embellished. Really, they had homosexual aspirations for him. It's not really a threat against his life. And ultimately, they don't even sin against him. They sin against his concubine. And finally, though, just to to save his own skin, um, he conveniently leaves out the fact that he is the one who threw his concubine to the mob. Kind of an important detail here, right? He slants the story to serve his own ends. what what, What becomes clear in this is that he is more concerned about the offense that he experienced than he does about justice and what happened to his concubine. That's the crime here for him. He makes it personal. His pride and honor is what's at stake here as a Levite, as a priest. Not The woman who unfortunately suffered at the hands of the mob and at at his hands as well. So we're to see this wicked priest lies at the root of everything that then follows. Because what follows next? Israel assembles for war. They don't confirm the facts. They don't interview witnesses. They don't talk with Gibeah and hear their side of the story. They just prepare for war, which is ultimately... A war of personal vengeance. And so right away, we're to see that the cause of this turmoil in Israel is because of a tainted leader, a little leaven that has leavened the entire lump. And Israel then becomes really just, um, or maybe say that the concubine really becomes uh, the personification of Israel. Israel itself being decapitated. Israel itself now on the verge of total fracture because of tainted leadership and because of the sin within. Well, at this point, the leader now exits stage right. The Levite's not heard of again. And our focus now turns to Israel itself. And so secondly, we see this terrible tribalism. Terrible tribalism here. Uh, Let's read verses 11 down through verse 35 to see what happens next. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voices of their brothers, the people of Israel, then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war." the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And the people of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up to the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Israel came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. They inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went up. Against them out of Gibeah the second day, and destroyed eighteen thousand men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord, and fasted that day until evening, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day, and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as as And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about thirty men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us, as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways." And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel, who were in ambush, rushed out of their place from Merah Geba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel. And the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So in response to the Levite story, Israel assembles for war. And they send a message to the Benjaminites. They say in verse 13, Give up these worthless fellows so that we may put them to death, so that we may purge evil out of Israel. What's interesting about these phrases is that this phrase, worthless fellows, which is sons of Belial, and purge the evil, are phrases that are picked up in the New Testament in reference to church discipline. In the Old Testament, Israel was to literally cut off evil from their land, but in the New Testament, this takes the form of excommunication putting evil and unrepentant sinners out of the church lest they corrupt our assembly. I mention this because this a serious business. It's no less serious now as it was then. Church discipline is a mark of a true church. Church discipline in respects we are to guard against those who come into our assembly because evil, tainted leadership, leaven, spreads. But it also highlights that Israel at this point is doing the right thing. They're trying to purge evil from the land of Israel. But of course, Benjamin doesn't like this. In verse 13, they refused to give up these men. They refused to give up men that had committed these horrible crimes, that deserved punishment. That's what I'm describing as terrible tribalism. Tribalism. What is tribalism? Tribalism is, is loyalty to one's own tribe or social group. Whether that to be loyalty, uh, whether that is loyalty to one's own race, one's own family, one's own political affiliation, loyalty to factions within the church—it's extreme loyalty where your group and other groups become enemies. They're pitted against one another. It's extreme loyalty to the point where there's blind ignorance regarding your own sins and flaws of those in your group, even in the cases of clear right and wrong. I mean, just an obvious example of this, as we can see in the news media in our day, right? Some news organizations uh, paint Republicans as evil and Democrats as doing no wrong, while other news organizations do the exact opposite, right? Democrats are only evil. They never do anything right, while Republicans are always right, and they can never do anything wrong. This is tribalism. Loyalty to our own group, which ultimately sets aside justice. It's partiality. You see, part of our sinful nature is that we love our own. We love people just like us. And this often blinds us to matters of justice and rightness. It's a sin that that we must guard against, especially in the church. Practically speaking, that's the importance of getting outside your own circles from time to time. Talking to people outside of your own tribe. Realizing that you need the perspective and input of other people because we're so often blind and ignorant to our own sin and flaws. But in response to this tribalism, Benjamin refusing to give up the guilty men, both sides now gather for war. But notice the irony of verse 18. Israel goes and inquires of God. Who shall go up for us and fight? If this sounds familiar, it should be. It's how the book opened. The very first couple of verses begin with this. Israel Asking the Lord who shall go up and fight. But notice the difference, of course. At the beginning of the book, this is inquired of God regarding the enemies of God, the Canaanites. And now they're asking that in regards to their own brothers. We're to see this as a bookend. Look at how far Israel has fallen fighting the enemies of God the fighting one another. Things spiraled out of control that now they're treating one of their own tribes as the enemy, as the Canaanites. And this is further highlighted by the fact that this inquiry shows that it's not just a mere conflict, but this is holy war against each other. Israel who had time and time again failed to, uh, to inquire of Yahweh. They have failed to properly exercise holy war against the Canaanites. But oh, when their own tribe wrongs them, they're quick to do what they should have done to the enemy all along. Just another example of how we are often far more harsh with those closest to us than we are even at times towards outsiders. Nothing hurts Quite like a turncoat, right? It's another form of tribalism. When one of your tribe goes off the reservation, in that sense, we respond with rage. This is what's happening here. Holy war. And so the battle lines are drawn up. Civil war now begins in Israel. And we read in verse 16 that that Benjamin had 700 chosen men. That they were left-handed men and they were able to to uh, be deadly accurate with the sling. As we see, this gives them a huge advantage. Even though they're massively outnumbered, there are 700 men, they're on the defensive, which gives them an advantage, but also they're on the high ground in the hill country, and they're skilled marksmen, so they could pick off men with a sword any day, because men with a sword had to get close. And the results of this, then, is utter carnage the first day, Benjamin destroys 22,000 men of Israel. 22,000 men, either killed or wounded. This brings some shell shock to the nation of Israel. Again, having second thoughts. You see in verse 23 that they inquire of the Lord and weep until evening. And they even, at this point, acknowledge Benjamin as our brothers. So they kind of recognize the tragic nature of things here. Lord, are we doing the right thing? Holy war on our brothers? But the Lord says, again, go up against them. And so they go up again. And this time, again, Benjamin slaughters them. 18,000 killed or wounded. Just massive bloodshed. to see this is God bringing judgment on both sides here. So again, in verse 26, they go back and ask the Lord, are we doing the right thing? They weep, they fast until evening, they offer sacrifices. Just a picture of deep humiliation and and confusion here. As they they wonder, what are we doing? Is this right? I do want to say, though, at least they're doing the right thing and seeking the means of grace through prayer, right? Right? How often when circumstances go bad in our life, we immediately assume that God's blessing isn't in it. That's the essence of walking by sight and not by faith. That's unbelief. We always must go back to what God has said. Even when it seems like we're being led into the slaughter. What has God said? And so Israel wants to know what God has said. And they they approach Yahweh through Phinehas, the high priest, Aaron's son. This little note tells us that this happened very on in Israel's history. Right away, actually. All this civil war and debauchery has been from the very beginning. Nevertheless, in verse 28, God now promises them victory, and that is exactly what happens. The battle rages the next day, and when things were most fierce, when it looked like Benjamin would win again, We're told in verse 35 that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. 25,100 Benjaminites fell that day. 94% of their fighting force. They were utterly destroyed. The key point, who is it that destroyed them? The Lord, Yahweh, defeated them. This is nothing less than a manifestation of God's judgment. God judged Gibeah for their lack of hospitality, for their homosexuality, for their rape and abuse of the concubine, for their tribalism and refusing to purge the evil from their midst. It's kind of like in Revelation, the first few chapters, where the Lord talks to the seven churches and says, Repent and remove these evil from your midst, or I will remove my lampstand, or I will throw a few of you on your sickbed. It's a serious business. God rained down severe judgment on Gibeah for their sin, killing 25,000 men. This is the consequence of tribalism. And even though the Levite and and Israel were far from innocent in this, God uses them to bring judgment upon the Benjaminites for their abundant wickedness. And this ought to shout to us. God takes sin seriously. Don't be deceived that because judgment doesn't come instantaneously... Because good things still continue to happen in your life. Don't be deceived as if that means that judgment will never come or that God is pleased with you. Whether it's now or whether it's later, doing what is right in your own eyes will always bring the just punishment of God. And this holy war against Benjamin is is nothing but a preview. Of that holy war that he will wage at the last day, at the final judgment. All of this then ought to be a bright, flashing light urging us to, to run and find refuge in Jesus Christ before it's too late. For Benjamin, it was too late. Well, we've seen the tainted leadership and the terrible tribalism. Finally, let's see, thirdly, the twisted punishment. Twisted punishment. Here we'll conclude the chapter reading verses 36 through 48. So the people of Benjamin Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men of the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke, smoke cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in the column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned. And the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were, destroy, were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as the opposite of Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fail, fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, and 2,000 of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon, and remained at the Rock of Ramon for months And the men of Israel turned back against the city of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. At this point in the narrative, the author, from 36 to the end of the chapter, circles back around and he recaps things. Some of the specifics of the battle. Why does he do this? Two reasons. On one hand, he puts us in Benjamin's shoes. So we kind of see the battle from their perspective. Right? Verse 40, the Benjaminites look behind them and they see this column of smoke rising out of their city. And then they see that they're defeated in verse 41 and 42. And they're dismayed as the battle overtakes them. This is intended to produce some empathy in us. We kind of feel bad for them. It had such great success before, but now they're they're disheartened as they are utterly destroyed. And and what happens is, this sets the stage for chapter 21, where the the empathy in the reader now becomes empathy in all of Israel, as they feel bad for the Midromanites, and they scheme to try to save them from total distinction. But more importantly, this last section here is recapped to highlight to the, the extent that Israel went in punishment. We read in verse 40 that Israel's strategy was this column of smoke, a sign of their victory, which was a sign of Benjamin's defeat. And what's interesting about this is this, is, this recalls the conquest. Joshua's victory over the city of Ai. Really, this is a new conquest we were to see here, which is so tragic about it. A new column of smoke. Signifying utter Destruction. More importantly, though, this recalls Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Likewise, God rained down judgment and all that was left was a plum of smoke reaching to the heavens. And we weird to see this as, as a symbol of everything that Yahweh hates and devotes to destruction. Gibeah is experiencing the same judgment as Sodom. And frighteningly and Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. God's wrath in hell is said to result in the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. This is a common theme, and we are to see, again, God is teaching us in real human history what the day of judgment will be like, so that we might escape. But ultimately, though, Israel doesn't stop with this, and that's the tragedy. They pursue Benjamin. They chase them down and slaughter them like animals. After all, but 600 are killed. In verse 48, we read that they turn back against the cities and all the towns of Benjamin, and they kill man and beast and everything that they found. This is a total massacre. As we see in the next chapter, everybody is killed. Men, women, children, animals, Everybody, because nobody is left except 600 of the soldiers who were escaped to a place of refuge. Just total annihilation. And this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy because Israel had no divine warrant for this. Only a few within the city of Gibeah were guilty. But in their zeal, Israel flies off the handle. They go into a rage and they go way beyond what God had given them in victory. And and this is sick and twisted punishment. And it has deep and lasting consequences as we'll see in the next chapter. Whether it was out of anger, whether it was out of revenge for their heavy losses, whether it was out of self-righteousness, they slaughter their own countrymen and they bring down punishment even worse than they would give to their own enemies. Brethren, we're to see in this that even in a just cause with God's blessing, Israel is still only doing what is right in their own eyes. And that's what brings us back to kind of the the central message as we draw this to a conclusion. You're going to see here that sin, it makes you twisted. Sin, it, it makes you stupid. Sin impairs your judgment even when you're in the right. Sin destroys our ability to reason, to judge simple matters of right and wrong. That's why Romans chapter 1 speaks of idolaters who claim to be wise but instead became fools. This is the effect of God's judgment against sin. It's it's, it's like a mental disease where we lose our ability to reason. This is part of the judgment of sin. God handing sinners over to the irrationality of their twisted sinful nature so that sin destroys itself. Consumes itself. My brethren, this is the message for for you and me this morning. No matter who you are in this story, whether you're the the callous and self righteous Levite, whether you're the hedonistic Benjaminites, whether you're the, the self righteous Israelites, all of us need to be saved from ourselves. This chapter represents for us a longing for someone to come to fix things. Someone to come to put an end to the madness in Israel. For God's revelation and God's law and God's worship, listen, are not enough. It's not enough. Israel had the promises. They had the same Ten Commandments that we had. They had the worship of God. But it was not enough. Israel needs a Savior. Israel needs someone to come in from the outside to rule over them and to save them from themselves. And this is what points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises that are only found in the Gospel. Why? Because on the cross, God unleashed holy war, not on us, but on Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus Christ bore the sins such as tribalism and self-righteousness and homosexuality and rape and murder and sexual immorality and idolatry as we read from 1 Corinthians earlier. Jesus Christ bore God's wrath against such sins. Jesus Christ let that wrath destroy Him rather than us so that we might be saved. This then, for us, is a a call to humility. To see our desperate situation. If if you believe this text, if you you believe what the Bible says about who you are by nature, it's a call for humility. I can't do it. I need the help of God. Apart from the grace of God, I can do nothing. Even our our righteous indignation, even our desire to, to, to make things right, with all the evil in the world today, is tainted by indwelling sin. This is a call then to run to Christ, not just once, but today and every day. This is a call then to to humbly submit to His Word and to His will and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not just once, but unceasingly every day. Placing yourself under His rule, under His wisdom, knowing that "Ah, I don't have the answers, and more times than not, I'm going to lead myself in the wrong direction. I'm going to make deductions from circumstances that are not true. I need to be led by the infallible Word of God. This is a call as well to to war, uh, to put sin to death in you by the power of the Spirit, to purge the evil from your midst, not just on Sundays, but every day. This is a call to look to Jesus Christ and to know that everything that He commands of us, He gives to us in the Gospel so that we might rely upon Him Throw ourselves in His arms and we may say, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. May I decrease and may You increase. This is what this passage calls us to today. We are to see in it the destructive nature of sin, the terrible judgment of God and our desperate condition so that we might flee to Christ and have life. This is what I'm calling you to today. This is what God is calling to you today from this passage. God, give us the grace to believe these things and to run to Him for refuge. Amen? Let's pray.